as long as we're listening to our customers and we're reacting and pivoting appropriately to bring more value around our DXP, we feel like we'll be successful. And we've seen that we, us reacting and actually helping them solve a problem that they're having and leveraging digital experience pathway and journey for their customer is helping us win. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm Sunir Shah, president of the Cloud Software Association. Welcome back to another great SaaS Connect 101. I am really excited about the people I invited today. Bill Wade from company.com. He's the CEO there. And Drew Quinlan, the VP of Strategic Alliance at Ring Central. The topic we're talking about today is something that I talk about almost every keynote at SaaS Connect, which is the future, which is hopefully soon to be the present of how software is supposed to be sold, which is through partners and distribution. Like the rule number one of sales is to get someone else to sell it for you. But the question is, how do you do that at scale? And with cloud software, it has been a challenge compared to box software because you can't ship a pallet of subscriptions to a partner and sell it. But both Bill and Drew are like true experts in this journey. So I'm glad to have them here to explain everything that they've learned, and hopefully we will all be wiser and richer by the end of it. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Bill. You have the more, one of the more interesting stories. And you know, company.com, you build yourself as a digital experience platform, which hopefully you'll explain. But can you just tell like a very concrete story. I'm this kind of small business customer. You have like over 100,000 in your, which is incredible. I'm working with this company. Tell me what company.com does for a small business. Okay. Well, thanks for inviting company.com and myself to participate today. Appreciate it. So company.com is a business services platform that is better known as digital experience, DXP. And the digital experience platform is an integrated set of technologies based on a common platform that provides a broad range of audiences with consistent, secure, and personalized access to information and applications across many digital footprints. So with that, company.com value proposition is really cut across three different audiences. One is vendor partners that we work with that are looking to distribute their services. The second is channel partners that we work with that in some cases are reciprocally a vendor partner in our platform, as well as a channel partner for serving our other services or value of our DXP to their customers. And the third and final and most important customer naturally is the SMB, the small and medium-sized business that actually is using our dashboard to access, enroll, engage, and manage the services that they've purchased or have access to through our channels. The majority of our revenue comes from channel, although we do have a direct business model that's really for testing and engaging new services to validate that the dog is going to eat the dog food, so to speak, and that we work out any kinks or issues before we roll it out you know, enterprise-wide to our other channel relationships that are interested in a particular service. With that as a background scenario to answer your question, I'll give you an example of valued relationship that we have that kind of cuts across a reciprocal relationship. So PaySafe Payment Solutions, which is a Canadian-based payments company, we actually engage them where we bring uh, bundled services to their existing portfolios of merchant relationships that they have. And then reciprocally, Another relationship we have with Office Depot and Office Max, they were interested in having us curate a number of different financial services and back office services. One of those services happens to be payments. And so in that relationship, we actually refer payment customer prospects to PaySafe and they qualify 
onboard and manage those relationships for a rev share arrangement. So the net gain for Paysafe is we help them add additional services to existing customers that add stickiness, attrition reduction, and increased wallet share. And then on the other side, we actually are a lead generation source for their core product, which are payments and fintech type services. Yeah. So like very basically, like if I was a small business, I go to Office Depot because that's where small businesses go. Office Depot used to like sell commercial off the shelf software in boxes on the shelves, right? But you can't do that with cloud stuff. So that's where company.com has come in and solved their problem as you're basically allowing them to commercially off the shelf sell cloud software. And you've made a nice, that's where the experience platform is. You made a nice experience for their end customers to purchase these third parties where Office Depot doesn't have to think about how to even stock and shelf and fulfill cloud subscriptions, which as we all know, are nigh impossible, you know, without something like company.com in the middle to support it. And that's why you've got to over a hundred thousand. I mean, like, I don't know how big your channel is. It was like six figures. It was really big. Yeah. So we've got a lifetime directly originated registrants, about 200,000 businesses that are mostly in freemium and some of them in premium paid state. And then we have about a quarter million business customers and users that come from a number of different channels and in different industry sectors, mainly focused on fintech, B2B, e-commerce, and retail. This is US only or is this globally? It's US only today, although we do have a couple of clients that we're working with right now that are seeking to, to pay, take our platform into their European customers. So that's a little bit more um, tricky for us, just given we've got to curate services if they ask us to do so. It's easier if we have a channel that's actually asking us to integrate their services, which is one use case that is getting more and more traction for us is that rather than us to deliver services, we're actually just delivering the DXP platform with unified billing and automated marketing and KPI management and single signed integration into services and let them make the platform theirs. And so if they ask us to curate services or add services we've got, naturally that's in our core wheelhouse. But if they're looking to actually improve their user journey, get a better mousetrap for getting better conversion by leveraging the DXP, we've got clients that actually don't use any of our services at all. This is why I had to bring you on. Like your market penetration is ridiculous for the United States. That's a lot of small businesses compared to the number of small businesses in the United States. You have a significant market penetration all pulled together because you've gone to the multi-tiered channel, which is actually how everything is sold if you are not a subscription. It was a bunch of paper, a block of paper sold through Office Depot. Uh, this would be like a dumb conversation. Of course, we'd be doing wholesale retail, but this is what you've done. And this is the future and the past of software sales. With that, I want to introduce Drew because Drew is the other side of the equation. He's the person who might give you a hard time. So Drew Quinlan is at Ring Central, and Ring Central I've been tracking for a long, long time because you guys have been one of the most successful SaaS companies entering a channeled market, which is telco and telephony. And you have, as a result, played both sides of the Sky Distributions game of working with channel partners and distributing through them. And then as you've grown, becoming a channel for people behind you into your ecosystem. So, I mean, Drew, would you mind introducing yourself and your role at Ring Central and maybe a couple of these projects you've worked on that are relevant? Yeah. So just to give an overview of Ring Central in, in general, you know, we've got two solution areas. One is a unified communications as a service. What that means to us is what we call M MVP, right? Messaging, uh, video, and, and phone. Those components make up our UCAS suite. Uh, on the other side, we also have a contact center as a service solution. Uh, which serves both voice and digital channels. So my role in particular is really focused around strategic alliances, mostly tech 
tech partnerships where we really do two things. First, we go into other people's ecosystems and other people's marketplaces. And those are typically other large SaaS vendors. The reason being is that we're a system of communication. We're not a system of record. So in those scenarios, when we're selling into the market, people typically have an existing tech stack. And what we're trying to do is fit into the most popular existing tech stacks. We think about it in terms of the workflow. Where is the workflow occurring? What are the pieces of it? And where does communications come into play? So when you think about a basic CRM, you've got people that are making outbound sales calls. You know, we want to make sure that we're doing screen pops, click the dial from the screen, auto logging the activity that it occurred, et cetera. And that's all about us going into other people's ecosystems, which is usually through some kind of marketplace. On the flip side, as we became a larger vendor, we also have our own platform offering. And so we have our own marketplace called the App Gallery, where third-party ISVs are typically building integrations into our platform to fill feature and product gaps that we may have. And so in exchange for people building those integrations, we do our best to provide them access and awareness into our own ecosystem, which results in leads back to them. A couple good examples of these existing partnerships. On one hand, we've got something like Salesforce, where we're on the app exchange, and we do see a tremendous amount of leads that come from that, that marketplace because we have a fully integrated communications offering, um, and it just makes more sense. It's less expensive. It's easier to roll out if you're already a uh, standardized Salesforce user or company. On the flip side, in our own marketplace, we have partners like uh, Theta Lake. Theta Lake built an integration into our system. They have access to our data. They're pulling out pieces of information and KPIs and they're analyzing those. And they're returning learnings back to our joint and, and customers. In a different realm, we have a very robust channel partner ecosystem uh, based on traditional telephony partnerships where those channel partners have strong long-term relationships are usually based over decades. And that's mostly a referral business. Those guys will refer leads back to us and we still sell them direct. And then, you know, a fourth kind of way to market through partnerships that we have are the recent announcements with Atos, Avaya, uh, Aquatel Lucent, where they've taken our software platform, white labeled it, and they're going in and, and actively displacing their own legacy install bases that are usually oriented around PBX landline solutions. And they're reselling our cloud system instead. Those are the four kind of different areas of partnership that we're focused on. So, I mean, those are all like, you have quite a wide variety of experience on both sides of the table, both on a technical partnership, on the channel partnership. So it puts you in the hot seat. And, you know, you're looking at Bill, his platform, which could be a good you know, avenue for Ring Central because they have a reach into a large amount of your market, especially those who might be outside the like the core internet, like SaaS friendly market, like the main street customers. If I was going to ask you, you know, when and why would it make sense to work with company.com, you know, what does Ring Central look at would look for in a partnership? What would you say? Yeah. So company.com brings several really powerful things to the market for us that we would be very interested in. But first and foremost is just their access to the SMBs. So the real roots of Ring Central are in the SMBs. We were offering an enterprise grade telephony system for small businesses. It brought a lot of different features and improvements for them to run a more successful business. The issue there is that the acquisition costs are really high. It's typically very difficult to reach these people and to educate them and to get them to make that shift. So when evaluating an opportunity like something with Bill, 
what we would look at would be the existing install base and the rate of growth, right? How many people would we potentially have access to? We would analyze that and try to understand what are the specific go-to-market activities that are being done and what kind of penetration rate can we realistically expect? How much of that install base and those new customers that they acquire could we realistically convert? And then on the flip side, we would pair that with an analysis of how to manage churn. We would want to understand who's servicing those customers, who's onboarding them. If they have issues, how are they being supported, right? And with every company, it's always a different model. But one, we want to see that there's a good plan that exists. We want to see clear lines of delineation about who's doing what. And then we typically would evaluate it and put together a business plan that says, you know, this is how much growth we expect. You know, this is how we're going to reduce churn to ensure that people are happy and staying long-term. These are the commissions that we're going to need to give up at each tier in a multi-tiered distribution model. And then the model spits out, you know, what the revenue projections look like. And then we're usually evaluating multiple opportunities at any given time. We can't invest in everything. So we look at the potential upside with a potential investment, with a potential risk, and we stack rank things. And that's how we decide where we're going to invest. The element of churn was a pretty interesting one. And Bill, I'll get you to respond. I want to go a little bit deeper on this just to understand. Because you're talking about commissions, you have to give up margin. I think this is the part that people have to understand. Like the lifetime, the return on and on the lifetime value of the customer when you give up a margin to the partner takes longer. So your churn has to come. So what is that equation? How does that shift for you when you're working with these partners? Well, when you're like evaluating resale opportunity versus a direct sales? And what do you what's the bottom line for you? Like what do you need on a churn level? Yeah. So, you know, typically what we need to see is a realistic expectation that people are going to stay longer than 18 to 24 months just to break even. Once we consider all of the commissions and all of the support personnel, the marketing investments, et cetera. And so our churn is typically a lot better than that. But when we lose direct control and direct access to the customer, we want to ensure that somebody is taking care of them. And we'll actually give up additional margin if someone's going to fund like a customer success high-touch customer success path. You know, it's always different with every strategic partnership. We have a very off-the-shelf partnership model, right? But it's very low-touch, it's very low commission, and, and virtually anybody can sign up and refer leads back to us. And if they close, they'll get a little bit of margin. But if we're talking about something more strategic uh, with a lot more upside, the model and the investments on both sides get to a much more detailed level. All right, so Bill? Now you're in the hot seat, but these are good questions. That's actually a great dialogue. So we, I'll respond back from how would we respond to Drew's analysis of whether our channels would be a, a good fit for Ring Central and then dealing with the, the churn issue, I'll address that as well. Um, I think we look at partnerships a little bit differently and we're very reciprocal in nature. So we've always kind of self-assessed we need to be really careful not to create a Frankenstein that we've got so many products and so many services that are all over the place that customers get lost in their journey. And, you know, we address that through containering different product types, you know, back office, financial services, telephony, you know, different types of ways for customers to really understand where they go to get what. And getting to the point of a partnership with Ring Central, we would look at does the product fit the need of our channels? Because our channels ultimately would be the ones that would basically get excited about adding the product to their assortment. We do a lot of bundled services. So is there a way to maybe add, you know, a product or even a, you know, kind of an entry level service into an existing relationship or a new relationship that's getting an assortment of services with a, you know, kind of a paywall upsell path 
or maybe the whole assortment that Drew has within their offering. And then we also would look at, you know, as, as part of a relationship, are there relationships and channels that Ring Central is addressing that we could actually bring our services and our platform to bring more value, to get more stickiness and traction against, you know, maybe engaging into their, their app gallery or other environments that are customer facing within the ISV channels that uh, Ring Central addresses. So we would look at it really kind of from a, a two-pronged approach. One is appropriate fit and does, a, does is the product something that our customers would want? And I think clearly given the success that Ring Central's had, it would, I'd assume that that would be a, a yes. We would go to our channels and get them to buy off. And I think that would build the business case that we'd work on together is, you know, we've got XYZ channel, they've got 240,000 businesses. We currently have 30,000 of those in our program. Maybe your product can help us get 50,000 50, customers instead of 30. And so we would look at it from that perspective and we would actually manage those channel relationships even down to helping them with you know, customer success journeys and commission payments and all that. We basically take that accountability for all the channels as it relates to how we work with our vendor partners. So that would be the response there. There's a couple parts here that for me, I'm reflecting on. Now, my background, I started off in business when I was six, buying candy at wholesale and selling at retail at a convenience store. So, because that's my parents own a convenience store. And what you're saying here about working on the wholesaling and distribution of Ring Central is exactly the same thing that any consumer package good company would understand. Like, you have a great product, there's already customer demand, you have a well known brand, Ring Central. It's already market penetrated in that sense. And so it's saleable and being through the channel then you as a distributor would work with your wholesalers effectively or retailers when you want to call them yep. your, your channel partners to see if they're open to putting on the shelf and their customers and because ring central is a strong brand they can pull through and they would meet their customer goals which is a new customer acquisition they want to bring more in the portfolio and more sales through of off-the-shelf software to increase their wallet share it's a pretty straightforward business case that you know anyone in second year business would have had to have done, but you know we're all learning how to do it in subscription land again. So I mean that part is good to hear because it's simpler to wrap your head around. But the harder part was the service modeling. Yeah, so I, I agree with the brand issue. I mean our philosophy is that we partner with the best in class service providers and market. So the trust of a customer is critically important, and that goes to the brand of the channel that we work with and the trusted relationship that they've got with the end user SMB. But naturally it makes our job a lot easier. And we're very forward with brands. So although there's some services that from time to time we do white label, a lot of our products, we actually, we want the brand of our partner to be in front of the customer because it adds that confidence level. Yeah, 100%. So the second part, which you guys touched upon, but there's different solutions. And I think, you know, Drew, you have different playbooks for depending on this. And then Bill, you, you as well. Bill, I'm gonna ask you, from your point of view, because you've probably seen a whole bunch of different models around end customer success and support of people selling through you. Some have like incredibly low touch, some want incredibly high touch, but then there's like this question of how do, when do I take over the customer? And that's a particularly SaaS oriented problem. Like Nike shoes doesn't have this problem. You know, they don't do end customer support, but you would have this problem if, you know, selling any of these products. So how does company.com, when you're onboarding a new ISV company, you know, work with them to figure out what is the playbook in order to provide end customer support effectively and cost effectively to make a return on investment? Yeah, it's a great question. So we've got a pretty flexible kind of engagement process with the channels that we work with. So first and foremost, we identify where are their gaps in their offering? 
What problems are they having with their customer engagement? How can we actually fix some of those challenges with our DXP platform? And then if, when it comes down to product orientation and then dealing with the customer service aspects, we learned over the course of time that the more we can do, even down to automated kind of drip campaign marketing, which we have built into the platform itself, actually helping with content and copyright as it relates to the messaging and the marketing campaigning content itself. The more we take on, the more probability that there's that we're going to be successful because everybody's got their day job. Everybody is busy doing what they do. And, you know, the investment for us to basically build out a DXP platform can be quite costly for both parties in times. And sometimes we underwrite that expense depending on revenue guarantees and kind of what the marketing plan is. So for our perspective, we'll We'll support the customer all the way down to decommissioning their customers in the environment. So a good example of that would be FIS Global, which is uh, another payments company. They uh, you know, do a lot of agent bank and different types of services in the bank channel and merchants across the world with uh, the acquisition that they made with WorldPay as well. And their value proposition was, we want to bring some additional services that we believe a certain portfolio of customer types need, but we want you not only to do the rollout and the customer communications for engaging the customer base, but when the customers want to cancel or they've got questions, we want you handling all of that as well. So basically the only thing that they do is they ingest a billing file from us on the 25th of each month to be put on the statement and bill the beginning of the following month for that current month. And that's all the responsibility that they've got. We handled everything else from uh, soup to nuts. And so that's an example of that environment. I'll give an ISD example. We've been addressing the very unique and specific needs of the veterinarian channel. The vet channel apparently has a systemic issue of marketing and engaging their customers. And they've got a, a very predictable model that has kind of grown cross-country where it's a price increase play rather than a new customer origination play. So we got engaged with PE firms that rolled up a big chunk of the U.S. market with the vet market. And they basically said, we need a marketing and growth and reputation management product that can help us engage our owned entities, individual store locations that have got their own brand, where they can get everything from pay-per-click advertising to automated response, reputation management, to email marketing, to social media management, and basically automating the push of content so that they stay relevant to their customers. And, you know, probably one of the more expensive product assortments that we've dealt with because pay-per-click advertising is not cheap with Google being Yahoo and even Facebook and LinkedIn. But the, the reality is it's, it was a direly needed product offering. So we put some time into it, curated those services for that channel. And we're just launching that in Q4 to a test base of hundreds of businesses. And if it works well, it'll end up being thousands. And so I would see that being, you know, kind of an appropriate discussion with Drew is that that market might really have a need for some of the you know, Ring Central products as well. It would be very easy for us to basically, you know, slip that in as either a product option or even an integrated product offering within the, the assortment that we've basically customized for that market specifically. You must be experts at product categories called through channel marketing automation. And I see Sudir is in the here. So maybe you can ask better questions than I can. He's from Exemplify, which is a TCMA product. But you must be doing a lot of like channel marketing, like through channel marketing automation, providing assets, training materials to various your resale partners. What have you learned helps? What's necessary? What's next? Like, what do you guys have to continue developing? Because this is like an ongoing area of question and concern. And SaaS is the like, how do you communicate through someone else to the end customer to support them and sell them? 
Yeah, we've got our kind of one size fits all third party marketing assets we push through the channel. But the things that we're most interested in exactly what Bill was talking about, it's joint value propositions, right? It's one of those unique value propositions that we can't bring to the market alone and another vendor can't bring to the market alone, but we can bring together, right? So when I think about that package for a veterinary hospital, you know, we have an embeddable SMS engine, right? So what about, you know, automated email reminder or automated SMS for appointment reminders? What about, hey, we haven't seen you in a while. It's time for your, because I know my vet right now sends me a postcard and, you know, who knows if I even get that. But if I get a text on my phone saying, hey, your dog is up for their next appointment and, and you can even possibly schedule it from right from the phone. I mean, those are the kind of things that are game changing. We couldn't do that alone. Other vendors probably can do that alone, but together we can offer some pretty incredible things. So out of those concepts, and that's with new partners, it's actually typically where we start. Who's the market segment we're going after? Who are the personas that would be purchasing? What do they care about? And then what's that unique joint value proposition we can bring to market together as a bundle, as opposed to something that we would do alone? We're spending a lot of time and energy right now with our product marketing teams, creating those joint value propositions to bring to market that are much more highly tuned to specific segments and solutions, just the, you know, the generic third-party collateral that we push out through most of our reseller channels. Well, this is actually a difficult question, right? So like, how do you do that kind of customer research into product development? Because that's time-consuming and somewhat risky, you know, and you're working through multiple tiers, right? So, I mean, maybe Bill, you probably have better experience, like just taking your vet channel, probably adapting your ISV, customers is it being led by your vet partner or is it being led by your ISVs or by you or all three like what's happening in order to find a better fit solution package well, I mean it's a whole product solution using Jeffrey Moore's term for crossing the chasm how is that even being managed like, to me that seems impossible it's a great question and we quite frequently work with experts in a certain field so mm. whether that's you know big box retail or the vet market or the fintech market or e-commerce We'll engage somebody that is a thought leader in that space, and then we'll work with them to help design what might be the right product for fixing a problem or enhancing the user experience and journey, as we've discussed you know, throughout the call here. In the vet market specifically, there's somebody that was introduced to us that is kind of like the grandfather of the whole roll-up industry, which you'd never know unless you're inside that industry, but it's a very vibrant roll-up market where older vets kind of hand the reins to somebody new and they want to get passed out of their business. And so it's kind of an ideal Petri dish, so to speak, for the M&A market where, you know, somebody comes in and invests $500 million buying X number of vet locations that have got really good margins. And then those PE firms are looking to bring better optimization and value from the standpoint of their ownership to basically enhance and drive growth. In that example, we were fortunate to find a great resource that is known across the whole country in the space. And we designed the product with his assistance. And he's actually the one that's made the introduction to five PE firms that are the ones that are now engaging into a test market. And if things go well, PE firms are committed rolling out to all the locations that they represent. So it represents for us 4,800 individual locations across the U.S. Oh, interesting. It's such a big opportunity when you start specializing and using the product offerings available from the wider market and specializing it to each market. Drew, from your point of view, you must have experienced this 
you know, you're being white labeled in various things. So how are you guys approached? How do you guys you know, like feel these things? Because it requires investment from your side, like the product yeah. management researchers, that's a quite, you know, can get quite pricey in time. How do you guys deal with it? The majority of the time we're doing it just with between two vendors, right? And it's usually something we're going to take direct. So it doesn't necessarily get to the depth of what Bill's talking about on a regular basis, although it does sometimes. And there's two key things that we've done. One is that within our product marketing group, we shifted the hiring profile and we started hiring product marketers that were very good at joint value propositions, right? Taking two different companies, product marketing messaging sets and combining them for, for something unique. So having that skill in-house is something that we needed and that we've aggressively pursued. Two is that you do need some type of external expert to talk to. We actually use this fantastic tool called Crossbeam. More and more people have been hearing about it. It's essentially a third-party account mapping tool. And so what we do with a lot of our partners is we have them upload their customer base. Ours is already in there. There's an anonymized matching process to A, see how much overlap that you might have between the two. Then you can start to share and peel back a little bit more detail. So we can identify existing joint customers today that we both have in market already. And then we'll go and target them for an hour or two hour workshop where we'll find one of someone there to speak to and we'll just talk to them and get their expertise, learn what we can to then drive the joint value proposition that we're trying to create. So those are the two major things that we've done. One is the internal personnel and then two is using Crossbeam to find existing joint overlaps. Well, Sadir, actually, I pinged him, Todd mentioned him earlier, he runs Examplify. He had a good question for you, Drew. So this may be the answer, but, you know, when you're trying to find an end customer profile, so you're tar- you have some target customer, how are you finding the right partner to match that profile? Like, uh, like, how are you seeking and prioritizing partners based on your ICP? So we're a pretty horizontal, broad solution, right? Virtually anybody could potentially be a good partner for us. Where we choose to invest is typically people that already have a a large market presence on one side, or somebody that's filling a critical feature gap for us that we're hearing from our sales teams and our install base that is uh, key or important. After that, it's really about diving in and getting to know those individual partners. Like how much confidence do you have that they're going to protect your brand? How much confidence do you have that they're going to be able to deliver? How good is their product? As Bill went back to, trust is critical. If you're out in the market, you introduce a partner that ends up failing somehow, that tarnishes your brand pretty dramatically. We're very careful about choosing people that can help deliver alongside of us. But you know, we're interested in all kinds of markets. If somebody has great access to it, and if there's a one plus one equals three better together integrated solution we can bring to market together, you know, we're typically interested. Folks, please keep firing questions in because this is your time. Well, I have another great question from Lawrence O'Toole from Thoratas. So I think it kind of builds on this idea, what you just said, uh, well, who's the right partner, but here he has a bunch of partners already. He doesn't know what to do with them. So he's saying he's a SaaS platform for SEO and content marketing, services clients from SMEs, large e-commerce sites, MNEs. Around 40% of our accounts come from agencies. That's pretty good already. He has a huge shadow channel. Historically, most of the agencies pay us for the software and use it to manage their clients' campaigns and absorb the monthly costs. So that's the retainer model. And a few of our larger agencies resell our platform APIs directly to each client at list price, even without us offering a percentage commission. Yes, the commissions don't matter, often for service partners. The question is, should I try and turn the agencies into a VAR channel? Any thoughts on advice how to approach this pitfalls to avoid, et cetera? 
So, I mean, Ring Central is being resold with or without people being your partner right now. This is the shadow channel. Most service companies just absolutely hate talking to the vendors because you just waste too much time from their point of view and then get them into, I mean, Ring Central is guilty of this too. Like, give me, push sales quotas down to the partners. Like, I don't sell Ring Central, I sell my services. It's a quite a dance to manage. So they avoid it. But if you can recruit them in a positive way, it can be an explosive growth channel. So both Bill and Drew have experience with this. So maybe I'll, how would you approach this shadow channel? I mean, again, it's all about the business modeling for us. So depending on how much margin we have to give up and depending on the costs associated with acquisition and enablement, et cetera, you know, the more that we can do to recruit that we can do in an automated fashion in a very low touch way that doesn't include human interaction, the more likely we are to allow for little to no barrier to entry, right? No minimum commits, no, no guaranteed sell through, none of, none of that, right? Where we start to require larger investments of our time and effort and possibly people managing partnerships and accounts for a variety of reasons, that's when we start to think about requiring commitments from those partners to be part of those programs. I mean, that's a really, really complicated question that we could probably spend hours discussing and, and, and asking questions back and forth. But at a high level, that's really how we look at it. If we can get away with a really low touch automated model, we welcome virtually any partner. If it's a higher touch, more investment heavy channel, then we typically start to think about minimum commitments and those sorts of things. Yeah, Bill, you, you work with a lot of those situations. Yes. Yeah, so really to answer the question, should I try to turn the agencies into a bar channel, any thoughts and advice how to approach this, pitfalls to avoid, et cetera. At that point, Lawrence, I would, would definitely have a, an engagement with your agencies to see what types of things your customers are asking for. You know, a lot of this is discovery and making sure you've got product, product alignment fit with the audience. But I do think, you know, I'm a channel lover. I, I think any relationship that you've got that's got downstream relationships that can be mutually beneficial. I think it, from my perspective, it's a great market. It reduces costs, acquisition, leverages relationships that are already in play. So I think they're definitely, I would certainly explore our channel if I were you. I think there are lots of pitfalls to avoid on that and, and probably more than this conversation can embody with the time that we've got left. So I've sent you a private message on my number. If you want to talk about it, let me know. I selfishly have a lot of opinions because this is what my company, AppBind, focuses on exclusively is your service partners and their micro issues around the risk around, you know, but the basic answer is they love you already. So why not love them back? Just keep in mind, they're not selling technology. They're selling your services. So you have to change your approach to them of saying, sell more of my stuff right now. Please thank you. Sell, sell, sell. And think, ask them, how am I supporting you and your sales to the customer? Because they're closer to the customer. And that's the value add part. Uh, and they'll, real, they'll bring you into more contracts if you can help them show more value to their customers, which is all they care about. And if you can achieve that, you can see explosive growth. I mean, you already have a 40% channel. HubSpot, you know, for instance, is a good, good example. Microsoft, you know, 96% of Microsoft is still through partners, 40% of HubSpot through partners. You can grow well. So we'll talk more about this endlessly this year. So please stay engaged, Lawrence. More questions. This is great. So Philip Gutham said, if you look at the software service providers available to you, Drew, what are the needs in running partnerships you think are not addressed right now? Let me see. I think there's a couple different ways to possibly think about that. I guess the perspective I would look at it from is what are the issues I'm running into in managing partnerships? When we run partnerships, we're still very much PowerPoint, Excel, or you know, Google Doc heavy, right? 
there's a burgeoning software industry around partner leadership, partner management that isn't strictly resell referral related, right? There's a lot of vendors out there that just handle reseller channels. When you start to think about alliances and co-sell, co-product development, co-marketing, it gets really complicated really fast when you start to think about marketplaces in general. And so I think my team in running the partnerships that they do now, we've started to really implement a few key software products. And there's a couple others I have my eye on. Workspan is something that, that I've been considering for quite a while uh, to help manage the partnerships themselves. And two is Crossbeam for the, uh, the joint account mapping, which is a huge one for us. But I think the needs in running partnerships that are not addressed are really software products that are geared towards alliance teams. There's not a lot of them out there in general. There's no clear market leader today. There's really interesting vendors, but to this date, we're still doing a lot the old school way, you know, email, Excel files, PowerPoints, et cetera. Bill, you must have a lot of opinions too, about like what's missing in the stack because still it's all being built still. I mean, you guys, you've had a long journey yourselves and you know, there's a lot more to do. Like what's missing? You know, what's missing for us in the stack that we've got is what our customers ask us for that we validate is applicable across, you know, a larger customer base. So we do a lot of validation before we ever bring products in and, and features into the platform. You know, we've all fallen into trap where you basically build stuff in hopes that they will come and uh, sometimes they don't come at all. So I think, I think it's critical that you get validation in as many ways as you can before you start making investments in features and products and those sorts of things. My personal opinion is the biggest missing element in the partnership stack that existed in the licensed software was publishing. So a lot of software companies, you know, you only have time to do the engineering, a little bit of marketing support, but like going to distribution through all these markets is really, really difficult. I mean, this is why company.com is so exciting because you are effectively publishing them into these different retail avenues and it's a difficult problem, but it's still a very nascent category. The idea of taking someone else's ISV software and lifting it and pushing it into markets that they couldn't even understand how to reach like the veterinarian vertical, uh, for instance. And that is still very, 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 very early. You know, it's probably the most exciting thing that could happen in the next 10 years is whereas a software company, you can work with companies like company.com and, you know, I, I don't understand everything you do. It's magic, but you've changed my business by me working with you, right? Because you're bringing me to large groups of customers and figuring it out for me. So, I mean, that's a pretty good question to end on because that's like kind of the future. So maybe I'll turn it back to both of you, Bill, I'll put you... I just gave you a lot of there. So when I ask you, what do you think is the future of what you're working on you know, five years from now? What, what has to happen for these things to be successful? Yeah, so for company.com, I think that the future is optimizing verticalization, following the customer's requests and needs. We always look to what's going to keep that customer in our platform daily. And last year, we did a lot of polling of our clients. And they said, you know, it's great that you got these services and, and those services may have been channel or services that we basically curated, but, you know, customers were asking, well, why can't I bring my banking relationship in, or why can't I bring my payroll company? And I want, if I'm really going to use this DXP platform, I'd like it to make it mine. And so we actually listened to those types of inputs and react accordingly. And now we've got a feature that's bring your own product and it's um, enabled somebody to container and customize their environment in a way that really down to the SMB customization rather than the need of the channel. I mean, the channel's 
critically important because they deliver the customers that ultimately are using the dashboard and the access and engagement and management of the services that they bought. So for us, as long as we're listening to our customers and we're reacting and pivoting appropriately to bring more value around our DXP, I feel like we'll be successful. And we've seen that even through COVID, some huge channels that are will be announced here toward the end of the year that actually expand our growth into millions of businesses rather than hundreds of thousands of businesses where we us reacting and, and actually helping them solve a problem that they're having and leveraging you know digital experience pathway and journey for their customer is helping us win. So I think at the end of the day, it's reacting and listening and making sure you get good validation while you're investing and growing the product. I love that because it's honestly business 101. I mean, like, you know, it's been missing for so long. It's just based like building markets. Like that's what comes down. How are you going to get rich next five years? The future for us is becoming uh, much more deeply embedded in a, in a variety of other products, right? A c- couple of great examples that, that people are living and breathing today. And I know, Sunir, you, you're in the heart of this right now. But things like telehealth and online learning, the more deeply embedded the communication protocols are for video, telephony, messaging, et cetera, so they become just a native part of the application that you're using. That's the future for us, right? So, you know, you have an app on your phone, you've got an appointment with your doctor, all you do is open the app and click the button that you're ready to meet and the whole video call occurs seamlessly. There's no third-party app, there's no logging in. It's all just deeply embedded, right? It's even more important with online learning with kids. You take an application like Canvas that kids are learning within today, they shouldn't have to go to an external video provider to get on their class. It should just be an embedded part of the Canvas experience. So so for us, that's definitely the future is getting our functionality and our, and our communication protocols embedded as deeply as possible and as many vendors as possible. We have one last question from Aners Thatcher. It looks like you are prepped to answer it. Uh, but how often are you auditing whether your partners are adequately representing your brand, both with high-touch and low-touch partners? Since the DXP platform is what is the customer-facing environment, and we basically design the environment at the specifications of our channel, and we get you know approval from our vendors in terms of how they want their brand represented in the platform as well, is we've got a pretty good control whether it's high-touch or low-touch partners and what that content style guides, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's kind of built into the framework of the DXP that it makes it pretty easy. So that's table stakes for us. Do you do any brand control with your partners? Yeah. So I would say that we don't necessarily do pretty strict brand control, but we're pretty reactionary with our low touch kind of high volume partners um, where there's a lot of them, but the ones that we apply people to with specific partner managers, I mean, we're, we're meeting weekly, if not more often. And so there's a really high kind of high touch model there that doesn't necessarily even require auditing because we're working together jointly on such a regular basis. So, you know, we, we kind of have a pretty large dichotomy there on, on one end with the vast majority of our partners, we're very reactionary. I wouldn't even say we proactively audit at all, but on the high end, the people that are doing the vast majority of the business, we don't necessarily need to have an audit because we're so heavily involved on a regular basis. I just sat with a couple of my friends last night for a backyard drink, and they were talking about the Apple partner brand guidelines and how much more intense those are. We haven't gone down that far. I think we can all imagine what that might, might, might be like if you haven't experienced them. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate this. The taste of the future and also the present, because it is, in fact, happening, whether or not you knew it or not. And so I would encourage, honestly, everybody 
who is in the, especially in the SMB SaaS space looking for distribution opportunities to reach out to company.com. Todd uh, Whiten is in the CSA Slack. So you can reach out to him there. I will continue to promote the, uh, your contact information and his uh, in the follow-ups. And then Drew, you're also uh, great. You're in the CSA Slack as well. So mm-hmm. if you want to reach out and talk about Ring Central, all things telephony, Drew's a man. Thanks for hosting today. Appreciate it. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe and join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you as always to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.